Morning, everyone. I hope you've had a great week. Excellent. This morning's Bible reading is from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 to 18, which is page 1190 in the Pew Bibles. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, be repeated endlessly year after year, making perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, priests stand and perform his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more, and where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Uh, It's been fantastic. So thank you, Rob, and the worship team as we came in this morning. It's just been a great start as we sit down and we prepare for the message this morning. I remember one night at our youth group, our small group leader, Terry, was talking to us about Jesus and what it meant to follow him. I can't remember exactly what the exact Bible verses were, but I clearly remember that she told us the story that she told with it. And it was about a country in Eastern Europe, and at this current time the Russians were invading the country, and they were at the gates of the city. There was a particular church in this particular city, and they were having their regular Sunday service when suddenly the doors crashed open, two burly Russian soldiers, probably full of beard, Russian accents, and AK-47s. But they were carrying their guns, and and as they popped into the church, they said to the people, for those of you who want to leave, we will let you leave freely, but for those of you who want to stay and remain, you will be shot. Now the majority of the congregation left, And as the last of the people that wanted to leave exited that very church, the Russian Russian soldiers shut the doors, turned around and slowly turned around to the people kneeling at the front of the church. These congregation members were waiting nervously 
as the soldiers walk down the aisle. Once the soldiers reach the front or near the front of the church where these people were kneeling, they placed their guns on the pew, got down on their knees, and said to the reigning few that they could now worship the Lord together. Finishing her story, Terry turned around and looked each one of us in the eye and said that these, the people in this church, the remainder, clearly believed in God and that the belief that their lives had been made sacred and that they were willing to give up their lives for Jesus. And she asked us, if it came down to it, were we willing to do the same? And that story stuck with me for ten years. Sorry. Today is our eighth and final lesson in the Life of Jesus series where we'll be learning about Jesus' sacrifice and we'll be looking at three main points today. Firstly, what is sin? The second one is the Old Testament sacrifices and the third one is the sacrifice of Jesus himself. Let's look at the first point, what is sin? We gain an understanding when we look at Genesis, when God creates Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and the Bible states in Genesis 1 that so God created man in his image, in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, the Latin phrase for the image of God is imago Dei, which means image, shadow or likeness of God. God placed us at the top of the created order. As it says in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the sea, or sorry, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So we were created as a likeness to God, and rulers over the earth but we were not created as equals to God. God gave Adam and Eve freedom to eat any of the fruit in the Garden of Eden, except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve was tempted by the snake and gave in, just as Adam did in Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to her eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and she and he ate too. Now both Adam and Eve were at fault. Eve by willfully disobeying, and Adam by just being lazy. By standing by and doing nothing. Now this bit disobedience to God is what is called sin. God knew that they had disobeyed, and he, that they had hidden themselves in shame because they discovered that they were naked. And God killed an animal and clothed them. He was furious, and in Genesis 3 he also said, Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And both Adam and Eve had to depart the Garden of Eden. Sin and death had entered the world. Paul puts it more succinctly in Romans 5, and I'll be reading this passage from the Message Bible, so please forgive me if it varies from yours, but I just love the way how clearly it put it. You know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma that we're in. First sin, then death, and no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relations with God in everything and everyone. 
But the extent of the disturbance was not clear until God spelled it out in detail in Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying a specific command of God still had to experience this experience, uh, time of life, the separation from God. And in Isaiah 59 it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. And in Romans 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in Romans 2, All who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do so by the very nature of things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. So even before the law had been given to Moses and before it was written down, God's law was there and it was being broken and the penalty of sin was death. There were standards and measures that God was holding us account to, whether we lived before Moses' time and were therefore judged according to the law being within our own hearts and faith, or afterwards where Moses was given the law and we were judged according to the law. When we were created by God, we were given, or we were to reflect his perfect character. But when we sinned, we became a broken and distorted reflection. God is the only one that can declare what is right and what is wrong, and he is the only person that can judge. For our second point about the Old Testament sacrifices, God, in all his wisdom, knew that we were going to sin, and he officially established the different types of offerings to be made in Leviticus 1 to 7. Now, just to clarify, the burnt and the grain offerings had already been offered earlier in Genesis, um, but God established what made the offering acceptable to him when he handed these laws to Moses. We read in Leviticus 1, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, or the tabernacle. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If an offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and to cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons of the priests shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, 
and the priests is to, uh, to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. God provided the priesthood, the animals, and food for sacrifice, and the very detailed instructions for the rituals. What was pre- what represented here was the gift, the provision, and mercy of the God. The priest and sacrificial system was God's provision for the covenant with his people, the Israelites. And he provided them with the law of Moses on Mount Sinai, where he sealed his covenant with them. And as part of the law, he provided the priests, the sacrifices, and the rituals as a way of maintaining fellowship and atonement for their sins. The people had to bring their offerings to the Lord for sacrifice, but as everything else, and as God had created everything, he'd already provided for these two. We learn several key things from the Old Testament sacrificial system. Although people couldn't approach God directly, there could be a mediator or a go-between. Forgiveness is costly. The sacrifice of the animal actually required its death. The sacrifices can only be offered by a priest appointed by God, and it must be unblemished and of the highest quality. If the right sacrifice has been offered, then God forgives the people as promised. Atonement, forgiveness and fellowship is actually external to the person. And God keeps the people in fellowship with himself as he provided the gift of the priesthood and the sacrifices. If we turn to Hebrews 10 and read from verses 1 to 4, it states, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipper would have been cleansed once and for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, while I was reading the Old Testament and reading through Leviticus 1 to 7, there were quite a number of sacrifices. There were ones that you had to do daily, morning and afternoon. There were ones that you had to do fortnightly. There were ones that you had to do on Sunday. There were ones that you had to do yearly. There were ones that you had to do, and it just kept going and going and going. And the whole thing that kept coming through was it was just a reminder of the sin that you had committed. So constantly the law that was there was just as a reminder to bring it to your attention. I'll tell you what, if I was part of the Old Testament, I think I'd run out of money. <laughs> I don't think there'd be enough. But, and this is the question that surely they must have actually, the Israelites must have asked, how can the blood of bulls and goats act as a sacrifice and act and for the sin of mankind? And how can they actually forgive us if we were, or how can they act as our sacrifice if we were made in the image of God? Surely they couldn't cut it. And the answer is they couldn't. God had already knew this. And the sacrifices that he put in place were actually only a temporary thing. And God was actually going to establish a new covenant that was talked about in Hebrews 8, where Jesus was coming. Now, there was an inkling of what was to happen when um, Abraham, or the story of Abraham, when God asked him to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac, whom he loved as a burnt offering. God spared Isaac, and he swore by himself that because Abraham had feared God 
and that he did not withhold his son, and he offered him as the Lord commanded. God provided a ram to be offered as a burnt offering instead and to fulfill the promise that he had made to Abraham. The Old Testament offerings and the story of Abraham were the foreshadowing of Jesus. And we reach our third point for this morning. This brings us to the sacrifice of Jesus, the Messiah and the Son of Man. The roles of the prophets, the priests and the kings in the Old Testament were separate roles, with God speaking through the prophets, God ruling through the kings and God forgiving sins through the priests. All three roles were combined in the person of Jesus. Jesus is a part of God and has been since the beginning, as it states in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. A prophet is sent as a messenger by God, and a person that speaks for God. And in Hebrews 10, verses uh, 5 to 7, it reads, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were, ple- you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, as it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. As we read earlier, a priest is a mediator and acts as a, as a go-between between God and mankind. They offer sacrifices to God on behalf of others. The writer of Hebrews compared Jesus to Melchizedek, a king and a priest of God in the Old Testament who blessed Abraham and Abraham gave him a tenth of all of, of his wealth. Melchizedek was a priest, not due to his ancestry like those of Aaron, but due to the power of an indestructible life. And Jesus is this priest, which is referenced in Psalm 110. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now Jesus did not glorify himself as the, as the high priest, but was called so by God as he obeyed God through his suffering. Jesus is the greatest priest, as he is both fully God and fully human. This means that he is the perfect priest, holy and sinless, as we learned from Alan last week, and that he would have gone through exactly the same things that we go through today on a day-to-day basis. He would have felt tiredness. He would have felt grumpiness. He would have felt the temptation to lie, whether it be just a white lie or whether it be one of a more serious nature. He could have felt the temptation to obtain power and rule Israel. He could have been lazy. Or he could have eaten the packed lunchbox in the fridge that was meant for his brother and just blame it on his brother and said that he ate it early and therefore should go without lunch for the day. And probably every other thing that we could think of. And just like us, he would have had to go through this daily. However... He did not give in to these temptations, even for a nanosecond. He lived a life life wholly devoted to his Father's will and was utterly without sin, as he was completely in tune with God's will. In Corinthians 2, chapter 5, verse 21, we read, For do we not have a high priest who cannot sympathise with our weaknesses? 
but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, but yet without sin. So as a high priest, what did Jesus have to offer? Well, he offered himself, his body and his blood. And his blood, uh, as he was the perfect sacrifice, he was the unblemished lamb and he offered himself willingly. Something that the poor old animals were probably not that keen on doing in the Old Testament, but they didn't really have a choice in the matter. Now this is such an important thing to take note of in what Jesus and God did for us. Because how can someone truly understand something if they have not gone through it themselves? I'd like to give you an example. Has anyone here gone skydiving? Anyone at all? Thank you, Rob. <laughs> I wasn't sure if anyone had, so excellent. Do you think that you would be able to explain to the rest of the congregation about the tension you have in your gut as you wait in the plane while it tries to reach the hole to the altitude of your heart pounding as you sit there and wait as you stand up and the accredited jumper hooks himself onto you from behind and that terrifying moment as the the door swings open, you have to let go of the hook and you jump out of the aeroplane and as you start falling, I'm sure there'd be screams in there, probably on my side I'm sure there would be, but then you have a breath of relief as the parachute opens and you descend to the ground. Now I've painted a picture for you all, but for those of you who have skydive, which just looks like it's Rob, <laughs> does it live up to the expectations? Do you think the others here would have been able to actually live through the experience by just talking about it. Exactly. And it was exactly the same as why Jesus had to come down to earth. It's one thing to talk about it. It is a, it is a complete another thing to actually live through it. So he could truly experience the temptation that we have to go through and he did not succumb to any of these temptations. Jesus can relate to us and intercede on our behalf because he knows and understands exactly what we have had to go through, what we will go through and what we are going through. What other religion or faith or belief system can claim that their God, gods or spiritual guide have actually given up all their power, everything that they are, come down to earth, lived life as a human, and then, and as part of that, not even as part of royalty or anything of renown, as he so rightly deserved to do, but offered themselves as a living sacrifice for mankind. There are none. Jesus Christ is the only one in history that has been able to do that. And there won't be anyone that will do that in the future. He didn't descend in power. He didn't come down and claim the throne of Israel and create a war to expel the Romans and carve himself an empire, as a lot of the Jews thought at the time. He came to this world quietly, born in a manger, in a stable that no one really knew. And all he wanted to do was follow God's will and share the message about the Lord and for him to act as the last sacrifice for all eternity. And Hebrews 10, verse 8 to 11, it reads, First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law, then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, 
And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus is also a king. In John 18, verse 37, it reads, Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into this world, that I shall bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus was a descendant from a royal line, from King David, but he was also the king of kings, and the kingdom he spoke about was not the earthly kingdom, but that of God's kingdom. We have heard over the last few months about how Jesus prayed, how he loved others, about his forgiveness, his servanthood, how about he faced opposition daily, and how he was holy. All of this tells a story of how Jesus lived, sacrificially and in perfect harmony with God's will and law. And all these reach the pinnacle on the night of Gethsemane and on the cross. Jesus is alone in the garden with the disciples having fallen asleep and he is praying, praying for God to have another path to mankind's salvation. The Bible states that he was in such distress that his body started to sweat blood. Now I was reading a book this week by Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. It's a fantastic book. And um, it just goes, it describes the physical pain that Jesus had to go through. And I've caught the main points, but I've just here to briefly summarise them. The sweating of blood is actually the bursting of capillaries that feed the sweat glands. When they rupture and blood can ease from the forehead, the nails and other skin surfaces. This phenomenon is called hematidrosis and occurs when the person is either in extreme physical or mental distress and it causes the skin to become extremely sensitive and fragile. So even before Jesus had started the sacrificial being whipped, carrying the cross and dying, he was already under a lot of pain and this only serves to actually increase that pain so when, it, yes, so when it came to the whipping, Jesus' skin would have been extremely sensitive to the blows of the cat and nine tails and the other physical abuse that the Roman soldiers subjected Jesus to. Jesus, however, even in this extremely stressful situation, submits to the will of God and states, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He allows himself to be taken, arrested for no wrongdoing, and is subjected to the flogging and crucifixion. Now the flogging, as per normal Roman standards, would have been utterly, utterly brutal. As the whips had braided leather thongs with metal balls woven into them, so that it would have been they would have caused deep bruises and the skin to break open on further blows. Sharp pieces of bone were also tied into these whips and they would have caused deep cuts as they lashed onto Jesus' skin. And the flogging would have been carried down from Jesus' shoulders all the way down to the back of his legs. Now what this would have caused was Jesus would have actually had a lot of blood loss. He was forced to carry his cross. And in this book um, called The Case for Christ, a uh, 
a medical uh, specialist actually said that Jesus would have been in what's called hypovalmic shock. Now, what hypovalmic shock is, is essentially if you've lost a lot of blood, you start becoming delirious. And they said that you could actually see that in Jesus as he was staggering, as he was walking to the, to the, um, the hill of Golgotha. Now, when Jesus was, spread, was, um, was placed on the cross, his arms would have been stretched out like this. And nails would have been hammered into his wrists about here. So not on hands as so often is depicted because what would have happened if nails are placed here, they would have actually just ripped straight through and would not have had any effect. So the Romans actually placed nails here because there is a very nice curvature of your bone so you can actually be locked in very nicely. Not so nicely for the people that were on the cross, however. What this meant is as you got nailed through here, you actually have a, a nerve called your median nerve and that is actually the main nerve of your arm. So what would have happened? Or oh, who's actually bumped their funny bone? Yes. It's quite sore, isn't it? It's quite ironic that they've actually termed it funny bone. I don't know who that was, but I think whoever did it obviously clearly had a very ironic sense of humour. Now, that's actually quite sore. Now, what this actually would have meant, as the nail actually went through the median nerve, this would have been absolute agony. The only the way they put it in the, in the case for Christ and this medical specialist is actually saying, take up a pair of pliers and imagine crushing that nerve with the pliers, just squeezing. He said that's actually what it would have felt like. Absolute agony. And as we heard from Con last week, in his uh, communion they had to invent a new word called excruciating which actually means out of the cross now Jesus' feet were also nailed onto the cross and the nerves there would have been crushed as well he eventually passed away about nine hours after being placed onto the cross as great as his physical suffering was there was something even more painful and we can't begin to imagine the depths of pain that this must have been. But it was that he took on our sins, mankind's sins, past, present and future. And and he acted as the perfect and unblemished sacrificial lamb of God. And God turned his his face away as he could not stand the sight of sin. And Jesus cried out to God in Matthew 27, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in his next breath, he gave up his spirit and died. I cannot imagine what Jesus must have thought and felt as he was spending his last moments up on the cross, as he was completely separated from both his Father and his Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit for the first time in eternity, a bond so intimate that we still struggle to understand it. Knowing Jesus and the testament of his character and life, I could imagine that as he hung on the cross, he was still interceding for all of us, saying, Judy, I forgive you. Paul, I forgive you. Brett, I forgive you. And so on and so on. When Jesus passed away, the temple curtain was torn asunder and he was raised to life three days later and then ascended to heaven after visiting his disciples and several other people. In Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 14, it
United States. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time the sacrifices for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect those who are being made holy. By dying on the cross and acting as a perfect sacrifice and fulfilling God's law in every single way, Jesus was given full authority, seated at the right hand of God, and has paid the price once and for all for mankind's sins. From Adam right the way through to when he returns in his full glory as his due. No one is left without the opportunity to know Jesus or to acknowledge God. With Jesus' sacrifice, he was able to establish a new covenant, which was a continuation of God's original plan in verses 15 to 18, where it says, The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where those have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit was sent to live within those who believed in him and is our godly compass. The inner sanctum of the temple is no longer required and is no longer restricted. But our own bodies are now living temples to Jesus himself. All we have to do is accept Jesus as our Lord and Saviour and God will forgive our sins and remember them no more and he wipes them from his memory. We are granted the gift of being welcomed into God's family and becoming children of God. Such a contrast to the Old Testament where we where we are reminded daily about our sins that we've committed and God just wipes them clean as though they had never existed. Do you recall the story I shared earlier on this morning about the Russian soldiers, about the church and the question that I was asked? To sacrifice something means that you must give up something either of yourself or of something else. And we tend to deem it in our society if we, if someone great sacrifices something for the lesser, that is actually a greater sacrifice. So say, for instance, if I sacrifice myself for my family, that actually means that, that actually means something to them. You know, so if I, uh, I was reading a story this morning, um, just on the news, and someone was touched about, um, a, a, read, a reading about a, a games company where one of the developers died and what he did was he actually manoeuvred the car in this car accident so that it hit his side and not his wife who was pregnant. Now that is a great sacrifice. He, he did it for his family but he could not do it for the entire world. How great is it that we've actually had Jesus as our holy God come down and do it for us. 
And he's, um, not all of us around the world are called to be like that church where we actually have to offer up our lives. There are many people around the world that have to do that, but we can actually freely come here this morning and worship our God. Jesus calls us to also live our lives sacrificially. In Matthew 16 it reads, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and he will reward such person according to what they have done. Jesus gave it all up. His power, his seat in heaven, the very nearness to his Father. And he sacrificed everything so that we could be freed from the penalty from the sin of death and have a relationship with him. He suffered terribly, both physically, emotionally, and especially spiritually, as he was separated from the relationship with God and the Holy Spirit. Why? The simple answer, because he loves us. In John 15, verse 13, it states, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. He loves us unconditionally and he willingly gave his son as a sacrifice in such a similar manner to Abraham when he offered Isaac, except that this time round there was no other lamb or ram to take the sacrifice. Jesus was it. God did not spare his only son. We've been learning about the life of Jesus in the last few months where we had learned about prayer, how to love one another, forgiveness, forgiveness and grace, servanthood, opposition and God's holiness. And today was on his sacrifice. If you are here this morning and not a believer of Jesus, I encourage you to have a chat with any of the members of this congregation to find out more as the lessons in these last few months have only touched on the iceberg that is Jesus Christ. They have only been the tip. If you would like someone to pray with you, there is a prayer corner on the back left here and there will be people there to pray with you. Following Jesus is costly as it requires us to put aside our will, our pride and to follow God's. But it is one of the most important, it is the most important thing that you can do. It is a transforming thing and it happens on a day to day basis. And he's already done everything for you. He's acted as the sacrifice, he's brought it to the tent of meeting, and all you have to do is accept who he is, accept him as your Lord and Saviour. For those of you who are here this morning, and are a follower of Jesus, we are called to live sacrificially, as it says in Ephesians 5, verse 1 to 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, 
as an offering and a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma. In a short minute, the worship team will come back up and sing, I bow my knee. During this time, I would like you all to reflect on what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. As Rob was sharing this morning, please, um, if you have a chance or an opportunity, I know some of you have done this already, if you, if you need to share, please share the gospel, please share about Jesus. But I just want you to reflect here this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that even though we have sinned against you and we do not deserve any of the mercy and grace that you have given us through the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus, you love us so much that you gave him freely so that, we, that he could bear your wrath. Thank you that you have done all of this for us, that you provided the high priest and the sacrifice and that all we have to do is accept the gift of Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, and we can become your children. That you have opened it up, not to just the Israelites, Lord, but to the whole world, regardless of whether they have been a Christian and a believer since they were five years old, Lord, or whether they're doing it when they're 89. We just thank you, Lord. Please help us to live sacrificial lives, pleasing and acceptable to you. Help us to spread your word about you and your son and help us to pick up our cross daily. We pray this in your heavenly name. Amen.